Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with freedom through faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hallelujah! Hello everyone everywhere, this is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Uh, we are so blessed to come to you through the radio, through the internet, through the podcast. However you're receiving this broadcast, we give God all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. Amen. Glory to God. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer and we'll begin our study today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for our salvation, for the gift of the forgiveness of sins, the gift of everlasting life. Father, we thank you that we are children of the most high, most powerful God. Thank you, Father, for that privilege. We know Jesus is our Savior. If you do not know that, I pray that you will by the end of this broadcast. And Lord, we thank you that you send the Holy Spirit right now to lead, guide, and direct our thoughts, our study, that all honor, glory, and praise for all that is accomplished will be for you and our Heavenly Father. And Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Shout amen, somebody. And Lord, this is our profession of faith, commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed. I like laying the solid foundation upon which we can build our study. Amen. So just repeat these words after me. Let them Get down into your heart and establish the solid foundation upon which we can build our study, our faith, our life, all that God has for us. Amen. Just repeat these words after me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, but the third day he rose again from the dead. Praise God. And ascended up to heaven, 
where he sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God. I want you to open your Bible this morning to the book of John. Now, I want to begin studying. What I'm going to talk about really begins in chapter 13, runs all the way through to 17. So just turn to John chapter 17, and I'll briefly cover the things that I want to go over. You know, let's turn to chapter 13. i got to go to 13 first. Chapter 13 verses 25 through 33. Then, lying on Jesus' breast, John is... Lord, i got to lay the, the foundation for this. Jesus is telling them he's going to die. He's telling them someone from his inner circle is going to betray him to the Romans. But he doesn't say who it is. Now, if you picture uh, an upside-down horseshoe, you know, where the opening is towards you, towards the bottom, that's the layout of the Last Supper. It's not, you know, a long table as depicted in the picture where everyone's sitting there on one side of the table. No. The typical table used for a banquet, was a horseshoe-shaped. And the most prominent person was not sitting at the end on the left side of the horseshoe. He was the second one in. The person sitting first in the first position was the uh, assistant to that person of honor. And there were not chairs, as you see in the picture. They would in a like a lying position is where they would recline and they would eat and that's how they they did it that was the custom so the person in the number one position could actually lean back and be on the breast of the person of honor and that's what you see here in verse 25 is John lying on Jesus breast okay where he could just lean back and ask him a question. Well, verse 24 says, Simon Peter beckoned to John that he should ask who it was that Jesus was talking about. In order to do that, where would Peter have to be? He was at the other end in the first position, on the right side, or what we consider the last position. In other words, Peter was the least of all the disciples. He was supposed to be the servant of all. That's why he got upset when Jesus began washing everybody's feet, because that was his job. That was Peter's job, 
Which is why Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. i got to wash yours. And Jesus told him, you know, what I'm doing, you don't understand right now, but you'll understand after. But since Peter was there and he heard what Jesus said, he motioned to John, hey, ask, ask who it is. So John just leaned back and said, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus said, it is he to whom I shall give this sop after I've dipped it. And when he dipped it, he gave it to Judas, which means Judas had to be right next to Jesus on the next side, on his left side. So he had John, Jesus, and Judas. A major revelation right there. Not just a disciple from the inner circle, but literally next to Jesus. You had John on his right hand, his right-hand man, and Judas Iscariot on the left. So close to Jesus, he was considered what we would call a vice president of the disciples. Okay? So after the sop had entered after the sop, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Then Jesus told him. What you're going to do, go do quickly. And nobody at the table knew for what intent he spoke this to him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag of money, that Jesus told him, go buy some more things that we need, or that he should go give some money to the poor, because it was a major holiday coming up. He then received the sop, and immediately went out, and it was night. Okay, now, therefore, after Judas left, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God the Father is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet just a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And as I've told the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I now say to you, I'm giving you a new commandment. Now they had the ten. He's not talking about them. This is a new one. I'm giving it to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. And by doing this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. Amen. Now, that study that we just read from those scriptures could be stretched out for weeks. Amen. But I'm going to try and give you just the best highlights without getting too bogged down. But, you know, you know me, glory to God, I may get sidetracked and this will end up being a two or three week study, if the Holy Spirit so wills. Amen. Uh, before we look again at the text itself in verse 25, I just want to set this up, if I could, for a few minutes about why I'm led of the Lord to conduct this study. The world in which we live obviously is bleak and filled with fearful people who are struggling to make some sense out of their life. The fears they have, they are personal and private, 
individual in nature, but they are also collective in nature. It's not enough that we have all the troubles of our own that we have to bear, but thanks to the news media and satellite television and instant news, we also have everybody else's troubles that we have to carry. There is a massive accumulated deposit of saturated issues that every person has to face. And at the same time, we find ourselves struggling uh, to face them and to accept them because we're so bad at our own personal relationships. So we lack any type of real support upon which we can lean. Trying to secure a meaningful, lasting relationship in marriage seems almost impossible. Families are full of chaos and disintegration on the left and the right. Add to this decades and decades and decades of propagating self-esteem and pride. And what you have is a people who are consumed with their own selfish desires, their own wants, who then will double down on the impossibility of making any type of meaningful relationships because everyone is so self-centered. And in addition to all of that, I want to share with you now the purpose of today's study in my mind and in my heart. It's a tragic story. But why I'm teaching on this subject today. This past week, the time of this recording, I lost a dear friend and co-worker, former co-worker. I had not seen nor spoken to him in probably three or maybe even four years, but while I was his supervisor, when I was a sergeant with the police force, we had many conversations about Jesus and salvation, many conversations, but there was one problem. He was not a believer. He was a devout Mormon. And despite my best efforts at showing him the problems with the Mormon theology and that true salvation rests in Christ alone, he would always end the conversation with, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. I did not despair, you know, because through my research and my studies, I've found statistics that said that the word must be revealed to someone an average of 40-some times before they accept it. And that word average means some accept it sooner. Maybe the first time they ever hear the gospel of salvation. Some maybe 100 times after they hear it. But the average is 40 times. So when you're talking to someone about salvation in Christ alone, about his sacrifice for their sins, about how he died for them, about how he was buried as we were going through our profession of faith, about how God raised him from the dead, accepting his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary in the place of all humanity for all time, for whosoever would believe. 
You don't know where they're at. You don't know if this is the first time they've ever heard it, the eighth time, or the 88th time. So if they do not respond to what you're telling them at that moment, just consider it another seed planted into their heart and into their soul and let the Holy Spirit deal with them. Amen? So that's what I would do. Now, you got to understand, working for a secular agency like the police force, you have to be very careful, uh, quote-unquote, about witnessing. Amen? So I would wait for the conversation to come up, and then I would let the person who brought it up know exactly where I stood on the issue of Jesus and salvation. Now, the rest of the time, I'd allow my actions and my words to demonstrate my faith. Amen. But the conversations, and, and invariably, I would say a couple times a week anyway, uh, I would be able to share my faith. Praise God. Well, I retired and began this radio ministry that Jesus has most graciously put me in to manage for him because it's his ministry. I'm just managing this aspect of it. Every now and then I would see this person I'm talking about at the grocery store or something like that. We would always have a great conversation and catch up on things that have been happening, but he would never actually surrender his life to Christ, at least not that I know of. Well, just over a week ago, I received news that he had committed suicide. Now, you have to know, even though I'm no longer on the police force or you know, associated with any formal things like that, I have many friends and contacts who are still on the force. And I received word about what had happened about two hours after the actual uh, initial finding, I guess you could say. And I say that to demonstrate the tight-knit community that the police officers share. I mean, we are that tight. Amen. Anything that affects one of us affects all of us. That's one reason they call it the thin blue line. That's the reason we call it a brotherhood. Amen? Praise God. Anyway, I've heard and have since verified through conversations with others that there was infidelity on his part which resulted in a very bitter divorce. His children were all grown. I, I don't know all of the situational circumstances around his final days or hours, except that his divorce had just been formally finalized a day or two before this, and that it did not turn out in his favor at all. And I'll just leave it at that. His co-workers, his supervisor, they all had conversations with him the day before this happened. And they all said there were no indications that he was this troubled. He was bothered by what had happened, obviously, but no indication that it was bothering him that much. Not even his closest friend, who I, I talked to, and he had talked to him just a few hours before this happened, had no indication. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about that. 
about what I know because it is confidential. I'm not going to go into all that. And it really doesn't matter to what I'm about to teach on. With the exception, I want to begin this study by making this statement. Without hope, all is lost. Without faith, faith in someone or something better, all is lost. Without love, love that comes from somebody to you, love that you can offer to somebody, all is lost. Faith, hope, and love is what we're going to study today. Faith, hope, and love. You see, the more materialistic this culture is, the more this becomes the reality. The more things we possess, the more things that occupy us, the more things that occupy our time, then the less significant our relationships become. If you live in an isolated part of the world where you have nothing but family, family takes on a greater significance. Amen? There is a kind of pervasive angst against... Well, how can I say this, Lord? Our culture has devolved, not evolved, devolved into one that is centered around self. Instead of the family unit, instead of the family being part of the collective neighborhood, I can remember going outside and, and playing and be you know half a mile, maybe an, a, a mile away from home. There was no anxiety on our part. Because if something happened, I knew people that lived down at that end of the road. And they would take care of me and bring me back home. If I was doing something wrong, there was an absolute guarantee my grandparents who raised me, my grandparents would know before I got home. <laughs> and sometimes I paid that penalty when I got home, glory to God. But the purpose what I'm saying is, there is a different culture today. Parents don't want to let their children go outside and play in the front yard for fear of something happening. You can't let, I mean, I used to ride my bicycle three miles to the movie theater, chain it up outside, go in and watch the movies, and I was probably, you know, 13, 14 years old. There was no problem with that get back out, ride my bicycle, and come home. Going down to the park, which was about five miles away on my bicycle, to meet friends there and, and have a great day, and then ride back home. No problems. Now, families don't want to let their kids to go unsupervised to the neighborhood playground. This society has devolved not evolved. We've gotten worse. And it's because of the self-centeredness that has taken place. Amen. And it's all wrapped around material things. What's classified and defined as prosperity is how much you can accumulate. 
So even in the midst of all this, this supposed freedom, we are now engulfed in fears and anxieties and doubts and questions. And there's a kind of uh, cosmic dread that looms in the lives of people, even in our prosperous nation at this time of history. People are searching for things to give them meaning. They're desperately searching, all the while consumed with selfishness and self-consumption. They find themselves unable to be satisfied, unable to be at peace, unable to have any type of lasting joy. Now let me simplify this. Deep in the heart of all people is a need for these three realities, faith, hope, and love. That's the absolute minimum that you have to have. You must have faith, hope, and love. At the same time, it's all you need is faith, hope, and love. People need love. They need to be loved. They need to be loved unconditionally. They need to be loved lavishly. They need to be loved generously. They need to be loved by someone who knows all of their faults and still loves them anyways. I'm going to give my wife a high five. Amen. Glory to God. She knows all my faults and still loves me. I know all her faults and still love her unconditionally and forever. Amen. You need somebody that loves you like that. Amen. Secondly, people need someone to trust. Someone to believe in them. Someone who's consumed with their well-being. Someone into whose hands they can place their lives. Who is powerful enough, generous enough, and has the resources to secure them in the midst of an insecure world. They need someone to love them and someone to care for them who has the power to rescue them from all their troubles. Amen. And thirdly, people need hope. They need to know there's a future. They need to be able to see the light at the end of the ever-darkening tunnel. To know that someone has a plan. Someone has a purpose for all of this. That there is a purpose for going through whatever life throws at them. Even if it's their own fault of the situation they are in, they recognize that, accept that, repent of that, and trust in someone to guide them out of that. That somewhere, sometime in the future, something good is going to happen. And it's going to be far greater than any of the bad experiences they are currently going through. Amen? Faith, hope, and love. You need someone to love you. Someone you can trust. Someone to care for you. To rescue you. To deliver you. To love you above and beyond all your problems. Someone that can give you a future.
Faith, hope, and love. Sound familiar? It's called the Christian triad. That's what's offered to every single person in the gospel. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, hold your place there in John because we're coming back. We're going to read that scripture. Praise God. Oh, thank you, Lord. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now abides or lives in us faith, hope, and love. The King James says charity, but it's translated love. These three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Often the Apostle Paul refers to that triad. There was a couple times in 1 Thessalonians, again in Colossians, and in other places. Those three divine provisions that come to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are essentially what we need to live life with peace and joy. Peace is the sort of negative side. It's the tranquility. It's the absence of angst, if you want to call it that. It's the absence of anxiety. It's the tranquility in the midst of trouble. Joy is the positive side. It's the exuberance in spite of everything you're going through. Peace and joy come from faith, hope, and love. Now, as we turn back to the book of John, praise God, in chapter 11. Hallelujah. Our Lord is going to say the last few words before his death to his 11 disciples. Now, even in today's society, a deathbed confession has full weight and power of being admissible to court as testimony. Even though it could not be cross-examined, it is still held that the deathbed statement of a witness or whoever is 100% admissible as evidence. Because it is believed as they are dying, it is the most important things that could be said. So here we see Jesus, beginning in chapter 11, saying the last words, the last teachings he is going to give his disciples before his death. And the words he gave them on that night starts in chapter 11 and continues through chapter 13. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way through, really, chapter 17. Now, it's a very long, drawn-out discourse, so we're not going to take the time to read it. But he's making them all kinds of promises. He's giving them all kinds of warnings as well. It all sorts of culminates in their mind and the reality because he keeps talking about his death and leaving them. And they're all concerned and they're becoming anxious. And while he's been with them, you see, they've had someone to love them. While he's been with them, they've had someone to believe in. They believed he was the Messiah. They've had someone that could deliver them from every issue. 
They had someone that could provide for their every need. They've seen him multiply food for thousands of people. They've seen him walk on the water. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They've seen him cast demons out of people. They've seen him confront the authorities that tried to trick him into making false statements and claims, and he turned their arguments against them using their own words. They have held Jesus up. They believed in Jesus. Now he's saying he's going to die and leave them. They're anxious about this. They don't understand it. You see, while he's been with them, he's filled their lives with hope. Now he says he's leaving, that he's going to die. He's leaving them. In addition to that, he tells them, now you are going to be persecuted the same way I'm being persecuted. Boy, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? He says you're going to be hated by all people. You're going to be resented. You're going to be rejected. And this has gone on through all of history to everyone who follows Christ. Amen. Jesus is telling his disciples, they are going to arrest you. He says in Luke chapter 21, they're going to turn against you, brother against brother, family against family. Entire societies are going to turn against you. And ultimately, they're going to not only kick you out of the synagogue, they're even going to kill you. And when they do so, they're going to think they're doing God's service as they kill you. These are all words he is speaking to them the night before he dies. He says, it's not going to go well for you. Now, why are they going to hate you? Because they hate me. Why are they going to hate you? Why are they going to do these things to you? Because you are not part of the world system. And the world system resents those who are not part of it. Why are they going to hate you? Because they do not know God and they are the subjects of Satan. See, this is a bleak kind of moment for the disciples. Jesus says he's dying. Jesus says He's leaving them. And now it's the early mornings of the last day, the day of his crucifixion. He says it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. And they head out for the Garden of Gethsemane. Now there's a Final prayer of Jesus, amen, in chapter 17. This is where he not only prays for his disciples, but he prays for us also. Turn there in John chapter 17, verse 14. We'll read verse 14 down to verse 20. Amen. Hallelujah. I have given them your word. He's praying to the Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world anymore, 
even as I am not of this world. I pray, Father, not that you would take them out of this world, but that you would keep them from the evil in this world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them, Father, through your truth, for your word is truth. As you have sent me into this world, even so I have also sent them into this world. And now for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And again, thy word is true. So you are sanctified by the word. Amen. And verse 20, Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And folks, every single person that has come to salvation in the name of Jesus from that moment to right now as you hear my voice has come to salvation through the teachings and through the words of these disciples. Every single person. Well, Brother Bob, well, I read what Jesus just said and I got saved. John 3.16, that's Jesus speaking. Who wrote it? John. You got saved through the testimony of John as he testified and wrote down what Jesus said. So every person from that moment when Jesus said that to his disciples, praying to the Father for his disciples, to this moment in time, every person has come to salvation through the testimony of one or more of these disciples and every follower since then. If you got saved because of a sermon I preached, if you got saved because of a sermon your pastor preached, he got it from someone who quoted one of the words from one of these disciples or someone else who did. You could trace it all the way back to the 11 disciples who were there as Jesus was teaching this. Amen? All right. They then continue to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the story, we're not going to take time to go over it, where Jesus goes alone to pray and the disciples fall asleep and all that. Then comes the arrest. Then comes the trials and the darkness of night. Now I have a book called The Six Trials of Jesus that you can purchase on Amazon. Uh, it was written as my master's thesis at Johns Hopkins University. And I turned it into a book. So it, it is a uh, uh, scholarly book with references to management styles and things like that. But it dissects this night that we're talking about and how the Jews conducted an illegal trial, illegal arrest, illegal trial, illegal interrogations. The whole thing goes 100% against the written policies and laws that were supposed to be implemented. And it's called the Six Trials of Jesus. But they arrested him illegally, interrogated him illegally, tried him illegally, then held a quick trial in the daylight hours so they could convict him, 
which they're supposed to wait 48 hours to do. They took him to Pontius Pilate, who sent him to Herod. Both of them said there's no no guilt here, but the Jews demanded his crucifixion. Pilate finally relented. And it ended up with Jesus being executed in the morning on the cross. So now, according to the disciples' view of things, it's all coming to an end. And they are deeply troubled. So much so, they go and hide out, locking the doors. Several times in this text, John knows their hearts were deeply troubled. Now, as our Lord closes this teaching in verses 25 to 33, he offers them comfort. And the comfort he offers them is built around faith, hope, and love. Around these three things. He says, you have one who loves you. You have one who can be trusted with your life in this time and for all of eternity. You have one who has a plan for you. A plan of hope. Faith, hope, and love dominates the final section of Jesus' time with his disciples. Faith, hope, and love is the last teaching Jesus gave to his disciples and has given to us. And you wouldn't necessarily see that unless you dig into it a little bit. So let's go to John chapter 17. Uh, let's see, beginning in verse, is it 25? Trying to see here. I believe it is. Maybe it's in 16. I lost my scripture reference here. Glory to God. It says, uh, well, let me just read what I got. These things I have spoken to you in a figurative language. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I have come from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into this world. Now I am leaving this world again and going to the Father. I believe it's in 15. Well, anyway. His disciples said, Father, uh, Lo, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using a figure of speech. Now we know you know. We know you know all things. We know that. We have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe you came from the Father. And Jesus answered them, Really? Do you believe right now? Behold, the hour is coming and actually has already come. And you'll be scattered, each one running to his own home and leaving me all alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you will have peace. For in the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. 
I finally found it. It's in chapter 16, verse 25. Praise God. 25 through 33. Hallelujah. Take courage. In the world you have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Remember what we described as the world? You know, how do you have peace in the face of all of this? How do you have peace in the face of Jesus dying and leaving you? How do you have peace in the face of persecution and even in the prospect of being executed, facing martyrdom? Let's start at the end. Go to verse 33. The last statement. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. Let's look at that word, courage. In the world, you'll have tribulation. What does the world mean? Well, we've already looked at that. The world does not mean the physical planet Earth. It means the system of evil that dominates the creation and dominates humanity since the fall of Adam. It is the satanically operated, demonically infested, sin exercise world of evil that we live in. It is the complex of evil that dominates human life and has not only dominated human life, but cursed it and cursed the entire universe in which we live. So just, you just need to be reminded this is what you live in. You live in a system of demonically controlled society. You live right now in the midst of the most demonic society that the world has ever seen. You live in the middle of this system of evil. Evil dominates the world. The world is ruled by Satan. He's the ruler of the world. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Which is just another term for sinners. It is a satanically operating demon infested world of sinners who practiced the wretchedness that the fall of Adam produced. You are in that world. I'm in that world. We live in that world system. So Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. Why? Because you're not part of it. The word in Greek is, if I can pronounce this correctly, I'm not a Greek scholar, Thalipsis. It means essentially pressure or affliction, distress. Basically, it says you are going to be crushed. Now, that's not something to look forward to. It says you're going to be put under so much pressure, it's going to be like you're placed inside a pressure cooker. You're going to be in distress. You're going to be under horrible duress. 
And that is clear from the earlier words in chapter 15, chapter 16. The world hates you. The world is hostile towards you. The Apostle Paul acknowledged this later to Christian believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, no one should be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance, we are going to suffer affliction. And so now it has come to pass. We are destined for persecution, destined for affliction. We're not supposed to be surprised by that as Christians. All that will godly in this present age will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 5.9, Peter says, The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. You should not expect anything more than what other people are going through as well. We expect the world to persecute us because they persecuted Christ. We should expect that they will kill Christians, maybe even us, because they killed Christ. They hate us so much because we are not of their world system. They don't know God. They don't have the hope that we have. So now in the face of all of this, in the face of this world tribulation that these men, these disciples are looking at, how do they survive? <laughs> triumphantly glory to God how do they get through it to what did they cling they cling to the words Jesus said to them go back down here to verse 33 again he says take courage take courage now that seems like a kind of weak response doesn't it you know Jesus is trying to give him a pet talk here you know hey take courage folks no You've probably had people tell you in the midst of the worst fears, in the midst of the worst situation, in the midst of the anxieties and disappointments and distress and trouble, and somebody tells you, take courage, brother. And sometimes you just want to turn around and knock them out. Pow! Tell me to take courage. As if they don't understand the depth of the troubles you're going through, the depth of your problem. How can they say that with such a superficial answer? What do you mean, take courage? It's a lot more complicated than that, buddy. Well, there's a reason it's not going to work when you say that. Because you have absolutely no power over circumstances. Amen. It's a nice gesture. Hey, cheer up, take courage. But you have no power over the circumstances. There's only one person who has power over those things, and it's Jesus. When Jesus says, take courage, that's a completely different issue from your friend saying, take courage. And that's 
quite a remarkable use of that word right here. It's one word, take courage. Or cheer up is another translation. The actual word, again, my Greek's not that good, but theraceti. One word. One word in Greek. It's a verb, which means it's an action that has to be taken. It is a command. Take courage, okay? Listen to this. Listen to me. Every time that word is used, and it's used many times in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, every time that word is used, it is a command. It is a command, not a suggestion. Take courage. In other words, Jesus is saying, cheer up. Cheer up. Now listen to this. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it is spoken by Jesus. No one ever else says that in the New Testament. And that's a whole different issue. Because if Jesus says it, and he is in control of everything, when he says, cheer up, that's different from the disciples saying cheer up or your friends saying cheer up. But you won't know that unless you get into the Word. It is not just a well-intentioned pep talk. On the other hand, this is an absolute divine promise. Glory to God. You see, the disciples are distressed, to put it mildly. They're afflicted. They are now under pressure. They don't know how they're going to survive without Jesus. I mean, for three years, they have poured their life into him. He has poured his life into them. They don't know anything else about surviving except doing it with Jesus. He's all they've known for three years. And now he says, I'm leaving. I'm dying. And guess what? They're going to persecute you. They may even kill you. For sure you're going to get locked up. But hey, cheer up. How can you cheer up when he's leaving you with that message? Cheer up. I'm going to tell you three things that will bring you joy. Three things. One, you are loved by God. Two, you are in God's everlasting care. And three, God has a promise for your future. You have love. You have faith. You have hope. You are loved by God. You believe in God. Your hope rests in God. That's all you need is to be loved by God, to be entrusted into God's eternal care, and to have his promise for you, a glorious future. That's all you need. That's what Jesus is telling them here. That's all you need. And I would say to you this, that is what every human being on the planet needs. I don't understand why people do not run to Christ so they can have one who loves them who is the sovereign of the universe, one in whom they can trust 
their lives. One who is all-powerful. The one who gives them a hope and a future. Who literally controls the future. Why don't they run to him? And this is where it gets bad. The simple answer, the simple answer is, they love their sin. They love their sin. But for those who come to him, he provides all that we need, praise God. To know you are loved by God. To know you are cared for by God. He's taken the trust that you give him by believing in him and in whom he sent, Jesus. You can trust that he will hold you and keep you forever. Whoever is in the Father's hand, no man can pluck out. Praise God. To know he has hope in you. He's in control of all things in the universe. Every asteroid, every comet, every sun, every galaxy. Everything. And he takes all of the anxiety out of life. It doesn't matter what you are going through. I can just tell you, I don't think there is one minute in my life where I don't have a tranquil peace and a sense of joy because of these things. No matter what else is happening around me, I just rest in God. That doesn't mean I'm living this in this little bubble that, you know, oh, I can just go on about my cares. Hallelujah. I don't care what happens. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what happens to whatever. No, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's a lot bigger than that. I rest in Christ. My hope is in Christ. I love Jesus so completely that I am giving my entire hope and life and future and all that I have to him. When you trust in him like that, your future is secure. No matter what mistakes you have made, no matter what you have done, Repent, ask for forgiveness, that's repentance. And the scripture says Jesus, or God the Father will blot away all of your transgressions and see them no more. When he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. A whole lot very often in this world, you'll hear about troubles. You'll experience troubles. You'll go through troubles. You'll go through troubling times when it seems as if the whole world is against you. And it is. Many times the troubles we go through are of our own making. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Just say amen and nod your head because it includes you. You know it's true. 
If you're in financial duress, a lot of times it's because you created debt that now has to be paid. For my friend, his infidelity cost him a blessed marriage, blessed finances, secure job, a loving family. And he lost it all. He still had his job. But to him, that wasn't enough. He lost those that loved him. He lost the hope of a secure future. Hope that things would get better. And he did not have faith to fill the void. He did not have Jesus from the conversations that I've had with people who were interacting with him in the last year or so on a, almost a daily basis. Matter of fact, they said he had left the Mormon faith. So in other words, he was faithless going through all these troubles. He had no faith. He lost everyone that loved him so he had no love no joy no peace no hope and that is what cost him his life because without hope the devil will tell you the lie there's no use in going on without hope that things will get better why continue Without faith in hope, you have no hope to hold on to. Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1. Now, faith is the substance of things we have hoped for. Faith is the proof, the evidence of things we cannot see. You see, faith gives us hope. Faith, hope comes by faith. Love comes by hope that who we share love with will love us. So first comes faith. Then comes love and hope in that love. If you have faith in God, then you have hope in Christ that God loves you. Amen? My friend had no faith to hold on to. Not only was he resisting the gospel of salvation in Jesus alone, but he had lost the faith he had in the Mormon theology because of his infidelity. He lost that. He lost any essence of faith. In the process, he lost 
those who loved him. And the love that he had was misplaced. And the trust he had was gone. And the hope of a brighter future quickly faded away. And the devil came with the lie that life was now hopeless. There was no one who loved him. And that all that he trusted in was now gone. And that trust is also translated as faith. So he had no faith, no hope, no love. Without those three things, he felt his life was now worthless and could not face any further reality. I'm not making a judgment on him. I'm not pronouncing a judgment on him. He's the one who has to answer. I don't know if in the few hours leading up to his suicide that he did not pray for Jesus to forgive him of his sins. I don't know. And not one person that I have talked to has made any reference or inclination that he was even inquiring about that. I don't know if Satan... I'm sorry, if the Holy Spirit was talking to him from seeds that had been planted by myself and others over the years. I don't know that. Nobody knows that. Nobody can answer that question except him and God. I do know that what if he failed to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness and salvation, which I will say in my own studies and in my own opinion is probably a sure thing that he rejected it because if you accept Jesus as your Savior and ask him to come into your heart, Jesus said not only will he come and recreate a new spirit man in you, but he and the Father will come and make their abode in you. And when you have the God of love dwelling on the inside of you, you have the faith in Jesus, the hope of God, the love of God. You have faith, hope, and love dwelling inside you. And if you have hope like that, then there is a hope of a better tomorrow. But someone who takes their life basically says they have no hope of a better tomorrow. Again, I am not passing judgment. That is not my job. But I believe that when he made the decision to make a permanent solution to a temporary problem, his troubles did not end there. In fact, 
they probably just began. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our only hope. You see, we can turn. Turn to John chapter 3 as we get ready to close. In verse 14, John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now we study elsewhere that God is love. Love so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, the son of love. Who is love? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So he is love. Love so loved the world, that he gave love, that whosoever would believe in that love would not perish, but have the everlasting life of love. Amen. God, who is love, did not send his love into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through his love, might be saved. Notice it doesn't say will be saved, might be saved. Because we go back up to verse six, uh, verse 15. Whosoever would believe in that love would not perish. Amen. God so loves you. Despite all of your sin, despite whatever you have done in your life, Jesus came and paid the required penalty for your sin. Think of it like this. This little old lady with her white little bun on her head sitting behind the desk in the church office who has volunteered four hours a day, six days a week, serving the pastor, serving the church. For 40 years, she's done that. And a motorcycle hell's angel biker who for 40 years has smoked dope, shot up heroin into his veins, snorted cocaine, killed numerous people, you know, raped women. In 40 years, he's had like 200 different women, infidelity, never received Jesus, rejected this offer of salvation. 
if that little old lady has never really accepted Jesus into her heart, but she thinks that for 40 years she served faithfully six days a week, four hours a day, if she trusts that her work will get her to heaven, her and that biker will be right next to each other in the pit of hell for all of eternity. There's no difference. They still have sin in their life. Doesn't matter what the biker did. If he receives Jesus as his Savior, all of his sins are blotted out according to the word of God. And God sees them no more. Now he will go to heaven and that little old lady who trusts in her works will still go to hell. Only someone who accepts that Jesus paid the complete price, the redemption price, can go to heaven. The only person that can go to heaven is Jesus. And Jesus said that when you receive him, you are recreated in his image who's in the image of the Father. That is the only way you get eternal life with the Father and with Jesus is through him. So if you have never prayed that prayer, you might be that little old lady sitting at the desk or you could be a biker somehow hearing this message or anywhere in between. Pray this prayer with me right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I accept his penalty in my place. Jesus' offer for my sin, his sacrifice on that cross, paid the price for my sin. And I thank you, Father. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you pray that prayer, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let me know. We want to rejoice with you. Amen. Until next time, this is Pastor Robert Thibodeau reminding you God loves you, we love you. Be blessed in all that you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.